Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter Eight. An hour later, we were all gathered around the big table, the tridion and showing a live feed from one of the more radical nets. There was my mob, anyway, gathered outside what looked like a factory. It was in the middle of the night, wherever they were on the surface of the planet. They turned over heavy machinery, were shouting and singing, and they smashed at all the more fragile stuff within reach. They had flashlights instead of torches and cruel-looking power tools instead of pitchforks, but they were angry enough. The image had the rock-steady look of an autofocusing camera drone, and the shots implied that it was hovering and pacing the crowd. Suddenly, a troop of military types in cold gear appeared on catwalks and overhangs above the mob and began firing. The drone, sensing activity, positioned itself a little higher and took in the entire event with precision and dispassion. There was no warnings or loudspeaker announcements, just poof, soldiers were there, and people below started dropping and running. Actually, not everyone, because a few of them were packing real weaponry after all, and they returned fire. One or two soldiers dropped back, but the others just poured on the slugs without hesitation. Somebody on the ground threw something overhead then, flying right by the drone with a silvery dazzle. There was a flash and a low thump just beyond. The image spun a bit as dust and shrapnel filled the air, then it settled on one of the catwalks full of soldiers just as it collapsed in a heap of metal and plastic. Snow and dust flew up in an ugly cloud as tumbling feet and arms fell with a screech of metal and the screams of people. We could hear a distorted cheer from those on the ground who'd not been buried, and in moments the shooting stopped. The remaining soldiers above were gone from the catwalks by the time the cloud cleared. And this reflects current events overall, folks asked no one in particular. Iris switched to another feed, and there was a scene from the city of Finery, in broad daylight down there, with a bigger mob of perhaps 5,000 people sweeping through the city center, Freedom Square it was being called, banners and fists held high. They were singing or chanting something, but I couldn't make it out. He switched again, and there was the image of a building, seemingly a private residence, fully engulfed in flames. People huddled in the foreground, laughing and pointing at a small burning heap on the front steps that looked suspiciously like a person. Oh, God, Candy muttered and turned away. He's happening, Ben Rogginston said simply, that granite gleam in his eye again. Small went down into that? A. Lareda asked in horror. The question for us, Carmi corrected, is when will that get up here? By the looks on most of their faces, I could see that this hadn't occurred to them. You can't have riots like that on a space station, A. Lareda protested. Tell that to Daimar Orbital, I put in. Corporate space, nine years ago. Seven thousand dead when a labor strike turned ugly. 
They still don't know if the fire on the O2 lines was an accident. It happens. Believe it. We need to go, Candy stated as a basic point of fact. We have a contract, Carmi countered. We're late as it is with this quarter's installment on the build bond. We can get sued if we don't keep the charter, and we certainly won't collect on the balance of our fee if we don't. Mr. Small and his people were insane to go down there, I agree, but that's what they get paid to do. We have to maintain the letter of the charter and show good faith on the spirit of it if we want to get paid as well. We're in bad shape. I'm telling you now, we could lose the ship to creditors if we don't make a profit on this cruise. That's preferable to losing our lives, Ira argued, holding Candy's hand. Of course it is, so we won't be stupid about this. If we keep engines and controls on standby, we can leave at a moment's notice, but only if the ship is in actual as opposed to theoretical danger. That's no theory down there, folks responded with a wave at the Tri-D. His tone, as always, cool and measured. He was clearly frightened nonetheless. Agreed, but the key words are down there. So long as this station is quiet, we have no reason to break the charter. That was hard to argue against, but I thought I'd give it a try. Gunnery can't help against rioters. We're essentially helpless so long as we're docked. If things do turn bad, it might happen fast. We should at least be able to defend ourselves long enough to get away. Agreed, she said, and then gestured to the box at my feet. So, what do you have? I lifted it up onto the table for everyone to see and opened it. It was filled with an assemblage of parts, which I proceeded to snap together as I spoke. Two Panther 3C5 assault rifles with four 50-round ship-rated anti-personnel ammo inserts and one 50-round armor-penetrating high-explosive insert. That's A-P-H-E, by the way, pronounced ape. The anti-purse rounds are designed for use against unarmored individuals and will not penetrate a bulkhead, or even a viewport, I think. They are low-velocity slugs that deliver a maximum kinetic impact to soft targets. Very little pass-through with these things. In other words, the person gets all the damage, not the ship. The apes, on the other hand, are designed for power. They're different than your usual bursting rounds. Each one is fully equal, both in explosive and penetrative power, to a rocket-propelled grenade. Yet the weapon itself can fire them on full auto, just like standard bullets. In fact, aside from their red color, as you can see here, they look just like regular bullets. These are especially lethal in space, for obvious reasons. All rounds are caseless, no ejected shells. The Panther rifle itself and its ammunition are both ZG and vacuum ready. They're optimized for use by pressure-suited troops, but also equal to any task on the ground. It looks strange, Ailareta piped in, pointing to the simple bar frame stock on the rifle. It stuck up from the weapon at an odd angle. Yeah, I replied. The Panther is designed to be held down low, at chest height, like this, or even at the hip. Being zero-gravity capable, these rifles have no kick to them at all. The venting is absolutely perfect. This latch on top is designed for a sighting array that pipes telemetry and targeting data to a user's helmet HUD or retinal display. Unfortunately, I don't have the digital sights that go along with these rifles, but they're fully functional otherwise. So they're not complete. I didn't know what to say to that. His tone was disparaging, and he looked completely unconvinced. The guy seemed to be deliberately goading me. Maybe this was how he dealt with stress, but it was adding to my own. Well, do you want them or not? 
I burst out at last. He held up his hand in a showy hold-your-horses sort of way and replied, I'm just trying to clarify, Ejock. Yes, of course we want them. I looked down at my shoes for a few seconds until I could drop the irritation from my words and face, then went on. Okay, well, these are a few years old now, but they're still standard issue for close-quarters special mission teams throughout corporate space. I assume Griselda has a weapons locker of some kind? Two stunners and a four-millimeter pellet pistol, Carmi said with a straight face. That, too, left me a little speechless. Okay, well, um, it just got an upgrade. You signed a sworn statement that you would never bring prohibited items aboard this ship, folks commented with a frown, and you read and initialed the list of things to which that referred, including guns. Technically, I brought them aboard before I signed that, I weaseled, but anyway, they're my contribution to the cause. Griselda can have them, free and clear. Always more trouble than they were worth anyway, what with random locker checks and such. They were brand new when I got them. They've never been fired, and I'm hoping for the same luck here. And you think two rifles can defend this ship? Ailareta asked with what almost sounded like disgust. Against a well-armed and organized military force? Certainly not. Against an angry mob? I think so. We can close off all exterior hatches except cargo, where we can see any approach through the station bay. We keep the iris valve open, just enough to watch and aim. We fire warning shots over their heads, and after that, wherever we need to. In the meantime, the ship is being prepped for launch. It's not about winning a war. It's about buying time. What could a disorganized mob do against palladium hull plating and armor, Ejok? Be real. This was from Ira, whose panicky tone surprised me. A couple of small pressurized cans of oxytorch fuel, I countered, set against the hull and hit by a crowd gun from across the bay, would blow a rather large hole in this ship. And I saw three such cans out there just a few minutes ago. The others now stared at me with faces that ranged from perplexment to horror. Yes, it's that simple. Now, Carmi has a point about the build bond, so if we're staying, it would be wise to close all exterior hatches, set a watch on the external monitors, and wait until Small, sorry, Mr. Small, returns, sends word, or misses his deadline. I can't see any other way to stay safe. Carmi and I have a meeting with the locals this shift, folks stated, and customs may yet come a-knockin', so to speak. Well, personally, I replied, I would just purchase our recharge, you know, pay them their ridiculous rates, then ignore them from that point on. Let the dockmaster bang on the hatch and threaten us all he wants. If we don't actually owe them money and we haven't violated anything but protocol, they won't push the issue with so much to worry about locally. That's a supposition, Ailareta countered with a deep frown, and it's not your call. Not at all, I conceded and sat back down. He was right about that much anyway, but I couldn't help but look for moral support. Sherry glanced away when I met her eyes, while Anya seemed lost in thought. Ben Roggenston had changed the tridee to a view of the exterior bay outside the ship. Speak of demons, he said, pointing up to a small group of guards surrounding an obvious bureaucrat approaching the berth. The ship's switchboard flagged an incoming call then, marked for the captain. On the tri-D, the guy in the middle was talking to his wrist. 
Here we go. Carmi muttered and then took the call on audio only, with the speaker wide open for all of us to hear. Captain Maynard here. You're early, Mr. Clemens. We're not ready to come to a meeting. We're still getting our documents in order. I'm so sorry about that, Captain, came the smarmiest voice I had ever heard. My escort is only available to me right now. I hope it's not too much of an inconvenience for you and your broker. Hang on. Let me check with him. She cut the pickup and turned to us. Ailareda looked worried but didn't say anything. Folks looked as unflappable as ever. Ben Roggenston stood scowling silently like a gargoyle. He's after a bribe. You know that, I stated in the silence. This guy's not even the dock master. He's just some middle manager whose world is falling apart and he wants some hard credit to tide him through. I agree, but we haven't dealt with life support yet, Carmi pronounced. Her tone was simple and final. All debate now concluded, captain to the core. Dell and I will be no more than an hour. Whatever work anyone has going on now, drop it and be ready to get this ship recharged. I'll pay this leech off, but then we turtle up like Ejok said. Cutting through red tape and arranging the recharge was the very first order of business at their meeting on station, and Carmi called in with the necessary purchase codes the moment the service was finally cleared. Clemens had more to talk about, though, so they would just be a bit longer. Ben Roggenston and Sherry scrambled out to the bay to handle the recharge themselves, ready to wave off the local dock crews, but none materialized. The tension now in the air was pervasive, but impossible to visually source. I figured we didn't owe these people any respect or trust, so Rena and I stood nearby, panthers in hand. I had wanted Candy out there since she would be a bit more intimidating size-wise, but she'd declined with wide, frightened eyes. Actually, I had really wanted Anya out there for the sake of her military training, but I thought it best to keep the bridge crew as safe as possible. Ailareda had the con, but he didn't balk at even one of my suggestions now. Rena didn't know the first thing about firearms, but after a quick lesson that mostly consisted of how not to shoot it off by accident, which, truth be told, amounted to about everything I knew as well, she stood there with a twitchy sort of coolness that I honestly hadn't known she was capable of. The guards around the bay watched us warily at first, but they didn't approach or even call out. The fact that we obviously outgunned them may have been a factor, I don't know. Actually, if anything, they seemed more distracted than ever, while simultaneously there were fewer and fewer workers around for them to watch. It was unsettling, and by now, Carmi's just a bit longer had dragged on too long. When Ben Roggenston signaled to me that the recharge was done, he and Sherry headed in via the cargo doors, which Candy promptly closed as soon as they were through. Rena and I used the personnel lock. I stood at the entrance for a minute, feeling impatient, then called Ailareda. They haven't checked in again, he replied to my inquiry. Frankly, I'm worried. It's not like Carmi. She'd contact us if they were delayed further, and... Wait, Dell's calling in right now. Hold on. At the same moment, the guards around the bay listened to something, too, over their comm sets. They all motioned to one another with hand gestures, 
then ran off down that central companionway without so much as a backward glance. The entire place was empty, not a green jumpsuit to be seen. Ejok to bridge, the last of the yokel badges just bugged out of here like they were late for a date. What's happening? I'm, I'm not sure, Elareta said nervously. Dell was whispering something about people fighting in the center line of the place. Then he closed the connection. Neither of them are answering now. The station data feed just went dead. Maybe the high dock network is completely down. Where are you? In the bay, but I still have a rifle. I'm going after them. Negative. I'll give him credit. There was a fair simulation of command in his tone. We can't have anyone else separated. Just sit tight and... Sit tight? You think that's what everyone else is doing? Carmi and Dell are in danger. This is no joke, Paz. I'm not laughing, Ejok. Your sentiments do you credit, but playing the hero right now is foolish. We don't even know where they are. They've got to be near the central companionway if Dell was able to say what was happening there. This isn't a big place, and I know my way around stations. With the data net down, you'll be out of comm range the moment you leave visually, Jock. Stay with the ship. Who's watching out for them? That vampire who was looking for palm grease? The people fighting? Two of Griselda's own are out there right now. The ship needs protection, too. What if something happens here while you're gone? How will that help them? Get back inside, then we'll close off the hatches and keep watch. Those were Carmi's orders before she left, and they're mine now, too. I swore in an insubordinate fashion, acknowledged the order, and cut the connection. Elareta was probably right, and I really hated him at that moment because of it. I took the time anyway to mess with those oxytorch bottles I'd spotted before. A panther shot from Griselda could set them off, too. I put the three pressurized cylinders on benches and racks across the length of the bay, but within easy sighting range of our hatches. My wrist comp buzzed angrily as Elareta watched me on monitors and tried to yell at me to follow orders, but I didn't answer. On my way back to the berth, I stopped to take a listen up that big central causeway and thought I heard shouting or singing far off. And then, not so far off. I answered his call finally, but spoke before he could. Paz, I don't know if it's a riot or a parade, but it's on its way. I'm coming aboard. Better lock us down tight. I was halfway up the ramp to the personnel door when a unit of four or five guards dashed in from a small side hatch in the bay and took up positions behind boxes and machines facing the causeway. They didn't even glance at the ship. They looked scared and focused on the entrance, but I couldn't see beyond a few meters up that way from my angle on the ramp. For a moment, there were only discordant shouts and chants growing in volume, but then I heard the first shots coming from the direction of the Corps. Crowd guns, for sure, and the randomness of them implied that they weren't being used by guards. There were yells from a dozen voices simultaneously, though I still couldn't actually spot who they belonged to. The guards aimed carefully up that way while the noises grew ever louder. Then, something glass-like flew out from the companionway, shattering against a metal post not two meters from the nearest guard, and all of them, in return, opened up with their weapons. I stood at Griselda's hatch, transfixed. It seemed like a news vid, but with a horrible sense of immediacy. Flashless crowd guns made their distinctive pock-pock sounds as small, widening bundles of hair-thin ceramic shards were thrown at hypervelocity into what was almost certainly an unarmored crowd. 
The chanting and singing segued quickly into screams and angry shouts while the guard simply fired and fired. There was no return fire, not even a bottle now. One man, though, a big fellow in the ubiquitous green, made a dash through the door with a long strip of metal held over his head like a makeshift sword. He bellowed hate as the guards cut him down just inside the entrance. The blade went skittering further into the bay, stopping at the foot of a work-scarred and grime-covered load-bot that stood still and mute. They popped several more rounds into the fallen man's back, nearly tearing his torso in half. The guards then paused a moment to have the two flanking troops close in so as to continue firing at what I had to assume by now was a retreating crowd. After dropping a dozen more shots down the companionway, they took up a semi-crouching formation and followed. The last person out, a woman who seemed to be the unit's leader, waved her hand over a command panel on the side of the big iris valve, then stepped through. Moments later, it sealed shut with a squealing metallic protest and Griselda was alone once more on the dock. Not even a minute had passed. Somebody grabbed me by the collar then and pulled me in. It was Ben Rogenston. He keyed our door closed and looked at me. Watching fight like Vidshow is good way to be dead. Jacques has never fought war up close. No. It was all I could say, all I had. He humphed. If someone shoot at someone else, you must to hide. If someone shoot at you, you must to hide. If cannot hide, you must to shoot at them. You are following? Yeah, yes. You are to be all right? His eyes were caring, but also concerned. He was cool under this sort of pressure, so clearly it was my reaction to the slaughter out there, rather than the violence itself, that had him scared. It didn't seem real. It still doesn't. He studied me for long seconds. He's just starting. Jacques know this? I know it. Griselda needs Jacques. Know this too? I do, but we have to get Dell and Carmi back. He shook his head, his mane and beard adding emphasis to his opinion. Now, maybe dead already. We can't just leave without finding out. Bin Rogenstein not say this. Must to wait. Too much unknown. Waste of time, maybe. Lives, maybe. Okay, yes, I agreed. The connecting companion ways are too dangerous, so someone will just have to go outside and down, get to the center line through an airlock. And then what to do? Is small place, but plenty big now with riots. The station net is down, right there inside the arc of the center line. Direct com to com will have the most coverage with the least amount of interference. He thought it over his mind going back to times of trouble in his early days, with his face very obviously along for the ride. Dangerous, but we go, we look, we try to find. Nothing more, nothing is understood. His fat index finger pointed at my face, and his eyes were that special kind of hard I'd seen before, except for the spark of fear in there that was looking a lot like me getting killed stupidly somewhere. I nodded with a steadiness I only felt strongly enough to feign. What's the plan? You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com 
or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.